0: But we're going to look at uh, an event, a couple of miracles that take place. Because over the course of the four gospel accounts, and we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, which account Jesus' life, it is clear to see that a day in the life of a disciple of Jesus was always an eventful one. It was truly an adventure. And we're going to look at, an event that takes place, or two events really that take place, one after the other, with the disciples, with Jesus and his disciples. These two miracles that take place in quick succession and we're going to see what Jesus is trying to teach, not just his disciples through this, but ultimately us as well. And we're going to see, we're going to see, we're going to see Jesus once again reveal to his disciples then his disciples, us now, 2,000 years later, who he is and what he has done. And we are going to see how Jesus chooses to involve his disciples right in these miracles. They kind of get, not just first-hand viewing, but they're kind of involved in it. They get a front-row seat as Jesus once again demonstrates who he is. So let's read through the text. um, And let's read through the first part of the text. So John chapter 6, verse 1, says this. We'll read up to verse 15 and then we'll take the latter part a bit later on. It says this, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. And now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Make the people sit down. And now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down and five thousand in number. And Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And we'll pick it up, the second section in a bit. We're just going to stop there. Back in verse 1 and what we just read, Jesus has made his way to Galilee. He goes over to the other side of the sea and while he is there he is then approached by this huge crowd. And they have come because of the signs they've seen him do. And as the multitude gather around, Jesus turns to one of his disciples and asks this of him. In verse 5, we read, we read this, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat. Now put yourself in the place of Philip for a second. Imagine, you're stood on a mountain and before you are literally thousands and thousands of people. Verse 10 tells us that there were 5,000 men, so that doesn't include uh, women or children, so there could easily have been a couple more thousand on top of the five, if not more. So picture that scene in your mind, you're looking out and before you, all you can see is thousands and thousands of people and you're sitting next to Jesus and you just see all these thousands of people and then Jesus turns to you and says, hey Philip, like, hey Jesus, hey, how's it going? And he says, you see these people, Philip? I want you to figure out how we can feed them all. I mean, think about it. how would you respond in that situation? Jesus comes to you, hey, you see these people? I need you to feed them. And Philip responds, I'm pretty sure how most of us would respond. He says this in verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. In essence, what Philip says is, hey Jesus, this is impossible. And a denarii was roughly a day's wage during Jesus' time. So he says, so 200 denarii would have been a sizable amount. But even if they had had enough money, which they didn't have, I mean, where where were they going to go and get that amount, that much food from? You know, it's not like they could pop along to their local supermarket. And to be honest, even a local supermarket might struggle to feed that many people. Philip turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, this is impossible. And as Christians... Jesus repeatedly calls us to go to places and to accomplish things that are beyond our ability and our skill. Things that are out of our comfort zone. And he calls us often to do the impossible. And just like with Philip, and we see this throughout the Bible, but as Jesus does this, as he calls us to do the impossible, he 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 asks us, knowing our inability to accomplish the call, but also the means. so when Jesus asks Philip to do this impossible thing he he asks him, knowing his inability to accomplish the call, but also the means of how Philip can actually fulfill this call and and the way in which he can do this is actually not through Philip. He says this in verse or what we just read he said this so this being Jesus Jesus said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do Jesus knows that Philip is unable to fulfill the task he knows that Philip can't do it on his own He, he doesn't have the ability the task is too big But Jesus doesn't stop there because he also knows what Philip needs in order to complete the task and that is Jesus. He knows that Philip can't feed those people but Jesus knows that he can, Jesus can. When God calls us to do the impossible, he then offers to accomplish that through us. So the one who... The one who calls is also the one who enables us to fulfil that same call. Because, as Jesus once said himself in, in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter nineteen, verse twenty-one, and we have a very familiar verse where Jesus says, "With man this is impossible, but with all things God is." Sorry, with all no, Let me say that again. Let me get it right. I was testing you guys. I'm <laughs> With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And that is what we're going to see exactly here, that through Jesus the impossible is possible. It says this in verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? What amazes me about this response from Andrew and the boy is that despite what little they have, they still bring it to Jesus. I mean, think about it. How could a boy's lunchbox feed thousands and thousands of people? And if I was in that situation, I would have just kept it hidden. I mean, I'd be embarrassed to come forward and be like, hey, what difference is this little amount of food going to make? And think about it, if if he had done so, if he had just kept quiet, he would have missed out on the miracle. He would have missed out on seeing the beautiful example of how Jesus can take the little that we have and use it to do wonders. It's It's a reminder that it is less about the amount that you have to give, but more about who you're giving it to. You may have much to give or you may have little to give but my challenge to you is to give it to God and watch what he does with it. To give your, your talent, your time, your education, your money, your passion, your possessions, your relationships, to give them to God for his purposes, to allow him to use it. And another thing that this event reminds us of is that you're never too young to be used by God. And if you're a Christian if you put your faith your trust in Jesus if you've accepted that gift of his forgiveness on the cross for our sin then he wants he wants to use you. He wants to use you. And if he could use this young boy and his lunchbox to feed thousands of people? Why couldn't he use ordinary people like you and like me? And we see this. This is exactly what Jesus does. He takes this little boy's lunchbox, this this little that he had to give, and he uses it to bless a multitude of people. Verse 10 is of what we just read. Says, so Then Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was... Much grass in the place, so the people sat down, about 5,000 in number. And then Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments, from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. You've got to just take a moment to step back and look at this, because often when we read through the Bible, we read these miraculous events kind of happen, and we just kind of, just quickly read past it. Like, yeah, and, and Jesus took this, and he fed thousands and thousands of people. Okay, next stop. But we need to take a, a moment to remind ourselves of just how... Incredible this is. This, this truly is a miracle. He takes this amount of food and he manages to feed thousands and thousands of people. And, and not just feed them, but they, can, they have as much as they want and then, not only that, but then there's much more left over. And you see, Jesus, Jesus isn't limited like us by the laws of nature. The God who spoke everything into existence now speaks and he provides food for thousands to the point that they are they are full and there is plenty left over. God provides more than what was required. It literally overflowed. And then the question becomes, in light of such a miracle, how do we respond? How will you respond in light of such a miracle? This is... How we read the people respond. In verse fourteen, it says When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. The people's initial response is is great, but unfortunately what they decide to do next isn't, but we'll look at that in a second. But at least let's at least recognise the good first. They they see the sign. They see the miracle and a a sign, a miracle is is basically a sign meant to point us to something or someone. The sign is never meant to be the end in and of itself. So, they they do what's right. They follow the sign to Jesus. They realise that there is something more about this Jesus. There is something different about this Jesus. They recognise that he is the Messiah. They recognise that he is the prophet who has come into the world. That was their initial response. And the question is, what will be our response? What will be your response? And let me give you a number of different ways in which we can respond to this miracle as Christians and even as non-Christians, how people can respond to this miracle. And or any other miracle, to be honest, in the Bible. We can respond to it. First of all, maybe our response is one, of unbelief maybe your response is one of unbelief i mean how could this be true how could a man take a lunchbox and feed thousands surely that isn't possible surely that defies physics this this is simply just a fable a myth to teach us a moral lesson but if that's your stance just flesh that out a little bit we can all agree that jesus was a real person who lived 2000 years ago right his existence isn't in question. It's whether this miracle actually took place, and and the others that we read. But when you look at the, when you look at the amount of sources and the reliability of it, surely it points to this, as, as crazy as it sounds, to this actually being true. We have this event recorded recorded by four different authors. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and two of those authors are disciples of Jesus. So they're eyewitnesses of this very event. And that's the case for Matthew and John. These guys are eyewitnesses. They see these events and are experiencing these events that they then write down for us to read. So the question becomes is, okay, are these guys lying or are they telling the truth? It can't be that they were simply mistaken or tricked by Jesus because that just isn't I mean, how do you make somebody believe that you fed 5,000 people with this amount of food? It's, you, can't, you, you can't trick somebody into that. The fact is, and, and the fact that there was more afterwards than they start with, that challenges that conclusion as well. So the only other option you have to say is, well, well they must have lied. But then the question becomes, why would they lie about it? What would they have to gain by lying? Both disciples experienced persecution for being Christians. For declaring these things and more, they would suffer. I mean, for example, take John. John, who wrote this very gospel, he loses his brother, his very own brother is killed for being a Christian, and later on, John is imprisoned in the later part of his life. I mean, why would these guys lie about this? Because they have nothing to gain from the lie. Surely, everything points to the unmistakable truth that the reason they wrote these events is because that they actually took place. That that which we read is true and that which we read is history. So that's perhaps some, one person's first response to this miracle or uh, reading the mi- miracles of the Bible is one of unbelief, but maybe another response is one of indifference. Maybe you do believe this event took place But you can't seem to see the relevance. You think, so what? Okay, man, he did this 2,000 years ago. You know, big deal. Why should this affect my life? What does this have to do with me? And the answer is that it has everything to do with us. Because this same Jesus, the same person who possesses such power and is alive today, came so that we can know him, came that we could have a relationship with him, came so that we could walk with him and become his disciples. And the very, at very least, the fact that this isn't something that you see every day, the unique nature of such an act, at least, it's got to at least make you curious to think about the other things that he said, the other things that he wrote about, the other things that he did, but ultimately... These miracles and all these other ones are ultimately pointing us to him and ultimately pointing us to his greatest act. This has just as much relevance for us today as it did for those disciples 2,000 years ago when they witnessed what Jesus was doing. So one response could be unbelief, one response could be indifference or maybe, God willing, your response is one of faith. Which is maybe you're listening to these events, and your response is one of belief, one of faith that then moves to action because it's one thing to believe these events took place, but then it's another to then act upon that belief and this is the this is the reason why John writes this gospel at the end of John's gospel it says this in John chapter twenty verse thirty one John says this, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It is believing in Jesus that leads to life. And this is why John has written this book. It's so that you and I would believe. And as we believe in Jesus, we would experience life, believing that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, so that by grace through faith we could be forgiven, we could be reconciled to God, we could experience life with God. You see, Jesus offered the crowd food here, but he offers us something even better, he offers us eternal life. He offers us eternal food. He offers us spiritual food, not just physical food. And we receive this by faith. We receive this when we turn away from our sin and we put our faith and trust in him. So have you made that choice? Are you still wrestling with unbelief or indifference or maybe... You've chosen to put your faith and trust in Jesus. So we see, is your, is your response one of unbelief, one of indifference, or could it be one of trust and faith? Oh, Lord, I don't understand how you did this. This really truly is beyond my ability to get right by my mind, but I trust you, Lord. And as I believe in you, I receive life. So we saw the initial response of the crowd, but now we unfortunately see the next response of the crowd which is perhaps something we can have all been guilty of at some point. It says this in the next verse, verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The crowd make a mistake which many of us have been guilty of. They try to shape Jesus, into their own ideas of who he should be. So let me say that again. They try to shape Jesus into their own ideas of who he should be. And in this case, they wanted to make Jesus into a political leader. And before they can do so, he leaves. And we can be guilty of doing the same. We can be guilty of saying things like, well, I think Jesus is this. Or I think Jesus is this. Or perhaps we accept part of what Jesus says, but then ignore the rest. And when we do so, we're just like the crowd. We're trying to force Jesus into our own image instead of accepting him for who he truly is. God calls us to accept him for who he is not for who we want him to be. Let me say that again. God calls us to accept him for who he is, not who we want him to be. Quickly, let's turn the focus back on Philip. Back to our disciple, Philip, being tested. I think we can all agree that he did not pass with flying colours, Right? He didn't perhaps get an A on this particular test, but before we're quick to judge Philip, let us not forget that we're just like him. We've all failed at some point, but our failure goes past just goes further than just tests and or even exams or, or anything like that. Our failure is we've we've sinned. Our failure is we we kind of failed at life, which. Yeah, we've failed at life. We've sinned and when we talk about sin, it's often called missing the mark. And it's quite, you know, it is kind of amusing when we use that term, failed at life, but, you know, it is kind of true. We have failed at life. We, we're we sinners. We haven't lived as God intended us to do. And sin can often be described as missing the mark, Right? We missed the standard of which we were called to, and we are just like philip we We, we failed the test, but by God's grace, there's one who's, who succeeds where we fail. It says this in Hebrews, right in Hebrews chapter four, verse fifteen says this: "For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses." but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. It's quite interesting. The the word in the original Greek translated as tempted here is the same word that we saw earlier on for test. So the word used for Philip where it says that this was to test Philip. Jesus was tempted and tested just like us, but where we failed... He passed. He lives that perfect life, that life without sin that we could never accomplish. And then he goes to a cross, he dies in our place, he takes on that punishment we deserve so that we could be forgiven. I want you to think of it this way. Think of it like an exam, okay? We failed, we got an F or whatever. Is there anything below an F? Like U or something? I think maybe. But wait a minute. You get an F. You get the lowest mark. You fail. Okay. Imagine you fail an exam. You get an F. So here's you in one hand. You fail the exam. You get an F. You you failed at life. I'm gonna we're gonna use that phrase. You failed at life. You get an F. Right. But then here's Jesus. Right. And he gets 100% right. And in in essence, at the cross, it's as if those exam papers they get switched over. Right. It's as if I receive. His 100%. I receive his A star, his 100% mark, but in but rather he then receives my F. Right? It's says, case. So here's me. I've got my F. Here's Jesus. He's got his A. And then it's like as if imagine that you're doing the test, right? You're here. Jesus is here. You're sitting next to each other. You do your papers. You get them back. You've got a big fat F circled on yours, and he's got a big fat A circled on his. And it's literally, what happens at the cross is as, it's as if your paper gets given to Jesus and his paper gets given to you. He gets all of your sin, he gets all of your shame, he gets all of your failure and you get all of his righteousness, you get all of his success, you get everything that he did right. That gets placed on you and that all happens at the cross. It's called what some theologians will call the great exchange. Our sin gets exchanged for his glory, for his righteousness, for his right standing. And we receive this gift, we receive this exchange through faith. By putting our trust in Jesus. Like Philip, we fail. We failed, we're sinners and that's what it essentially means. We have failed to live up to the standard that Christ has, well, God has made us to live to and called us to. And God knows exactly that, so He comes, He dies in our place after living a perfect life, so that His perfect life gets placed on us, and our, our failed life gets placed on Him. And that's the first miracle that we read of in this chapter. And then straight away, we then followed up by an, uh, uh, just another miracle as well. So, back to our text. And it says this. And let me just briefly. Well, actually, no. Let me just briefly read from Matthew's Gospel. Because you see, we've seen this. Okay. So Jesus has fed these people. And then Jesus begins to withdraw because they are about to. They want to make him their political leader. So Jesus, as we'll see in a second, he withdraws to the mountain. And as he goes there, he's praying. Jesus leaves the noise and the commotion of the crowd so that he could pray. It says this in Matthew's gospel fourteen, this is Matthew's account of the same events. Matthew fourteen twenty three, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came he was there alone. Jesus gets alone to pray with God. This is not a one time event for Jesus. This is his lifestyle. A lifestyle of coming to the Father repeatedly, getting alone with the Father to talk to Him. It's not for Jesus. It was never just about a list of requests. It was never about coming to God the Father like Father Christmas, being like, "Okay, today, God, I uh, can you give me this? Can you give me this? Can you give me this? Can you give me this?" Cool. I'll see you next time. But rather, it was something which was relational. It was something in which He talks with Him. He opens up His heart to Him. He speaks. To God in prayer, God the Father, and if we ever want if we want to know what the a a the perfect prayer life looks like, look to Jesus, He is our perfect example, and we see that as he is praying up the mountain that the following events take place says this in verse sixteen of John chapter six, so what we've been reading John chapter six, verse sixteen says this: when evening came. And then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. What an event-filled, packed day for the disciples, right? Think about it. They spend their day, they see Jesus feed thousands of people, and then they end the day by getting caught in a storm and having to be rescued by Jesus. And not just rescued, but seeing Jesus rescue them by walking on water. Not something you see every day. And as, look at verse 17, as the disciples set out in their boat to the other side of Galilee, we see that they soon find themselves in the middle of a storm. As we just read, verse 17, it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Evening had fallen, it was dark, it would have been, think about it, it would have been pitch black. And on top of that, the wind was blowing and the sea was crushing against the boat and the disciples were in trouble. Mark's account says this, that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. They were struggling. And it's easy to forget, isn't it, that the majority of the disciples were seasoned. I mean, within that boat, they had seasoned fishermen. They had men who knew these waters like the back of their hands. They, knew, they had men who had grown up sailing across this very same sea and yet even they, with all their experience, all their expertise, find themselves going nowhere. The storm is and was too big for them. They find themselves in a situation where all their expertise, all their knowledge, all their experience, all their strength, all of their determination were not enough to bring them through. And we all face moments in life just like the disciples where the storm around us is beyond our ability. And no matter how much we row, no matter how much we try, we can't seem to make any headway. Unable to save ourselves, we're in need of help. We need somebody outside of the storm and bigger than the storm to enter into the storm and rescue us. And this is where Jesus steps in. Verse 19 says this, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. And because this is such a once again, another well-known event. Now, even non-Christians know this event, right? Jesus feeding five thousand. Jesus walking on water. I'm pretty sure even today, somebody talks about walking on water and talking about being Jesus. It's like everybody knows about this story, you know. And but it's, it's so easy to miss the radical nature. of What is taking place? Jesus is walking on water. Has anybody ever tried to do that? Come on, there's got to be somebody can confess. I used to try to do that. You know, you go to the swimming, you go to swimming bars. You kind of like. Yeah, you run out and what happens? You, you you sink. No matter how hard you try, you just sink straight away. But think about it. Jesus is walking on top of the water. Uh, but don't miss how radical this is because the distance from the, the eastern shore to Capernaum was roughly around about six miles or so, which means the disciples were roughly halfway across the sea and for Jesus to get to them, he had to walk because it doesn't say that he just suddenly appeared it said that he walked to them, which implies that he was on the shore and then from the shore he walked to them. So think about it. he would have roughly been walking around maybe three to four miles he walked on the water. He walked that whole distance. And if that wasn't amazing enough, he does this in the middle of the storm. Think about it, the, the wind is blowing and the waves are crushing, are crashing up and down. And it's like he's taking a stroll. He is, there's no indication that he is phased by this. There's no indication that he's kind of stumbling, trying to get his thing. He's literally just taking a stroll on water for, set, for three or four miles while the storm is around him. This, this should leave us in awe. This should leave us in amazement that Jesus would have such power that he could do this without breaking a sweat. He could do this just, just like taking a stroll. And sometimes we need to ask God to ignite our passion again for these because we, we, we can become so accustomed to it. We become so unmoved by it. So I've heard this so many times. Yeah, Jesus wants. to. Like I've heard this so many times. It's so easy to become so unmoved. And you see the disciples, they are anything but unmoved. They are completely frightened. And... Um, and think about it, they're already frightened for their lives because of the storm. And then they see Jesus coming towards them. And Matthew's account says that they thought it was a ghost. It says it in Matthew's account. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. And that's Matthew 14:26. These guys are completely terrified. And this must have been a pretty amazing sight, right? Twelve grown men screaming for their lives in the middle of a storm that they feel powerless against as the figure of Jesus comes walking towards them, defying the very laws of nature that we see around us daily. And the question that may come to mind is, why? Why all of this? Matthew's gospel, in Matthew fourteen twenty-two, in Matthew's account, it even says this: that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. You see, it was Jesus who had sent the disciples into the boats. They were in the storm because they were actually being obedient to God. They weren't in the storm because they were being disobedient. They were in, they entered into a storm because they were being obedient to God. So why? Why did Jesus do this miracle? Why this miracle? Jesus did this for a reason. It was all according to his plan. He sent them into that storm, knowing there would be a storm. He sent them into those boats, knowing there would be a storm, knowing that he would come and walk to them on the water. Because he does this because he wants to show his disciples then but also now, something really important about who he is. You see that in verse 20. It says this: "But he said to them, Jesus." So Jesus walks on the water. He walks towards them, and then he says to them, "It is I. Do not be afraid." Jesus enters the storm and speaks, "It is I." The literal translation is simply, I am. Jesus comes to his disciples in the middle of the storm and says, I am, do not be afraid. That's a bit strange, right? Normally we we would expect of, I am what? Like, I am here, I am Jesus, I am he, I am. We usually expect something after I am, but he doesn't say that. He just says literally, I am. And to understand the significance of I am, we really do have to go back to the book of Exodus. And actually, Hugo covered it only a couple of weeks ago, when we see God appear to Moses in the burning bush. And we were just reminded, weren't we, of just how amazing that encounter is. Firstly, I, loved, I just love how, where it says in, in Exodus 3, verse 2, it says, "...he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed." And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burning. You don't see a burning bush every day that isn't burning. Make sense? So the bush is on fire, but it's not burning. And I love how Moses is like, this is not something I see every day. I'm going to go and check it out. And if you remember, as he checks it out, God speaks to him. And God says to him, God speaks to him. Basically, and basically, God comes to him and speaks to him and says, hey, Moses... I've seen the oppression of my people. I know what they've gone through. I've heard their cries. I've seen their pain. I know their pain. I know their sorrow. And now, Moses, I have come down to redeem them and I want to use you, Moses. I want you to, I'm going to use you to redeem, to set free the people. I'm going to save them. It's going to be for you, Moses. And as you remember, Moses had a number of different responses. One of those responses was this, where he said, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? What is your name? Basically, Moses says, Hey, look, God, if I'm going to go to these people, what's your name? What shall I tell them is your name? And I don't know if you've ever thought about that about God's name I mean what is it if someone were to ask you what is God's name how would you respond and here we get a front row seat as as God answers his question he says to him that this is my name this is how I've chosen to reveal myself it says this God said to Moses I am who I am and he said say this to the people of Israel I am has sent me to you. Now, every time I read that verse, it still baffles me. I, I, still, I, I still can't get my head around it. I am. I am. His name is I am. And I, there's a beauty in that because I think we're going to spend the rest of our lives wrestling with that. One pastor explains it this way, a guy called uh, Louis Giglio. He says this, God knew it was imperative for Moses To know who he was. That he was I am. I am is the present tense, active form of the verb to be. As God's name it declares that he is unchanging. He is constant. He is unending. He is always present. He is always God. This is his name and this is how he wants us to remember him. In the rest of that verse, God continues to say, God says to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel: The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. As we begin to look back at this account in Exodus, it's becoming a little bit clearer why Jesus' words to his disciples in the middle of that storm are so, is so significant. When he says, I am, do not be afraid. Jesus is saying to his disciples in the midst of the storm, I am God. I am the great I am. I am the God of the whole universe, the God of your ancestors, the God who created the world, the God who spoke to Abraham, the God who wrestled with Jacob, the God who protected Joseph, the God who set the Israelites free from slavery, the God who led Israel out of Egypt until the Promised Land. I am God. Jesus wants his disciples to know, look, I am God and I am in the midst of the storm with you. It is for this very reason that they no longer need to be afraid. For the Christian, for the follower and disciple of Jesus, we no longer have to be afraid when surrounded by the storms of life because the great I am is present. The great I am is with us. Verse 21 says this, Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they we're going. You see, Jesus miraculously meets them in the storm and then miraculously brings them through it. The disciples immediately find themselves out of the storm and safe to shore. And, and, and there are many things that we can learn from this. There's many things that Jesus wants to teach us and show us through this. But one very simple theme that can be taken away from us, is that Jesus, the great I am, is present with his people through the storms of life. And I, I, I have experienced that personally and I think that is often why he allows us to go through the storm. Think about it, right? Jesus could have easily stopped the storm from the shore. Right, he, he didn't have to allow the storm to continue for so long. He didn't have to walk on the water to them, but rather he chooses to. Think about it. Jesus could have easily, right from the shore, seen his disciples in trouble and just been like, click, and the storm's gone, and they're like, oh, back to normal, we're fine. Jesus could have easily have done that. He could have just spoken a word and, and the storm would have stopped completely, but he doesn't choose to do that it would appear that it is better for the disciples to see that God is with them in the storm than not to go through the storm at all. Let me say that again. It seems that it would appear that it is better for the disciples to see that God is with them in the storm than not to go through the storm at all. And I think it is because in that moment the disciples see Jesus, for who he truly is, he is the great I am present with us. And Jesus gives us the same promise. In Hebrews 13 and verse 5, we, it, we, we read this, Jesus says, this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's Hebrews 13 verse 5, God says to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I don't know what storms in life you you may be experiencing or the storms you have already experienced or even the storms which will one day take place. But this I know for those who have put their faith and put their trust in Jesus, he is with us. And if, you, if you're in that moment, you ever begin to doubt his love for you? You're in the middle of the storm and you're like, man, you begin to have doubts about Jesus or doubts about his love. Always, if you find yourself in that moment, look to the cross. Look to the cross. Because at the cross, it's the greatest, it's the greatest proof that Jesus loves us. If you ever doubt his love, look to the cross. Like, man, I'm not sure if Jesus loves me. Looked to the cross. He died for you. He was willing to suffer for you. He chose to enter suffering so that we could be forgiven. He chose to display that love to us. Jesus has a purpose in allowing, us, allowing the storms in our life because he wants us to know that he is with us in those moments. That we would in those moments is an opportunity for us to turn to Him and to see Him for true for who He truly is, which is the Great I. Am. What an amazing few hours for these well, few hours for these disciples. Like right? less than twenty-four hours, and look at what they've already seen. They've seen God feed thousands of people with a boy's lunchbox, and then they've seen. Jesus walk on water during a terrifying storm. They have witnessed firsthand both the power but then also the intimacy of God. The power and the intimacy of Jesus and how he invites us to know him as his disciples. This is, this is the same Jesus. The same Jesus we read of in these pages is the same Jesus who invites us to know him. It is the same Jesus who invites us to put our faith and trust in him and to follow him. And I made that decision 17 years ago. Wow, that's a long time. That's a long time ago. 17 years ago. I made that decision and it was the best decision I ever made. That is not a decision I regret but rather a decision I'm I'm extremely thankful for. And question comes, what about you? Will you choose to believe and put your trust in Jesus? And as you do so, as you you repent of sin and put your faith and trust in him, as you become a disciple of Jesus, will you then embrace that lifetime walk with him? That lifetime being a student of him? Walking with him even when he asks you to do the impossible like Philip? Walking with him as you see him do amazing things with, with such little to offer. Walking with him as you go through the storms and the difficulties of life, knowing that he has a purpose in those things, knowing that he's with you in those things, and knowing that eventually, no matter how bad it gets, think about it, all that we experience here now as a Christian, this is as bad as it gets for us. And yes, there will be moments where He allows the storm to go on, and moments where, we're like Lord, I'm struggling. I really want this storm to end. And in those moments, He calls us to trust Him, to lean on Him, knowing that eventually the storm will end. Knowing that eventually we will get to that other side. It, where He and 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 the way in which we get to that other side is through Jesus. That He is both with us through the storm. He is the one who takes us and brings us through to the other side of the storm. And it's not, it's not about our strength, it's not about our experience, it's not about our ability, but rather it's all about him. The great I am being present with us. So for those who are disciples of Jesus, embrace that title, embrace that we are his children, we are his disciples, and embrace that lifelong journey that he calls us to. And for those who are not yet disciples of Jesus, what's stopping you? I mean, every day really is an eventful one. Maybe not as eventful as this, but... It is definitely one of adventure and of excitement and ultimately one of life. Because remember, as we read previously, John's whole purpose for writing this book is that we would believe in Jesus and as we believe in him we experience the life that he offers us. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you, Lord, that you, I thank you just for this, this event, Lord, seeing how, seeing how powerful you are in how you can feed thousands, seeing how powerful you are and how you can walk on water and you can stop a storm. But then it's also seeing how you personally walk with your disciples and how you challenge them and how you lead them to places that I don't think they would naturally choose themselves. on. help us to remember that, Lord. That being a disciple of Jesus will come with its moments of challenge where we're asked to do the impossible. Moments of challenge where we enter into storms and difficulties. But Lord you call us into those things and sometimes even lead us into those things. Yes, knowing that we in ourselves are lacking in ability and strength and knowledge and all that we need but rather you're not lacking in those things. And we want to say thank you Jesus. Thank you Lord that you you do the impossible when we can't. And we thank you Lord that you're with us. You promise to be with us in the storm and you promise to bring us through it as well and you promise to have a purpose in it Jesus and as we go through the storms Lord help us to fix our eyes on you to see you as the great I am to see you as with us in the midst of our difficulty and trouble and Lord we ultimately want to thank because this is all possible because you you passed the test that we failed you succeeded where we didn't And ultimately the the storm also reminds us that we were in the storm, the storm of sin. That we were enslaved by our sin, that we were broken by our sin and we were in no position to save ourselves, so you step in, Jesus. We thank you that you step in. You step into our mess, you step into our brokenness. Lord, you die on our cross so that we could be forgiven so that we could be forgiven of our sins so we could be set free so we could be made clean so that we could become your children so we could become your disciples we say thank you Jesus Lord and we want to follow you we thank you for inviting us into that relationship with you that journey lifelong journey that lasts for all eternity Jesus and we say Lord we want to help us by your Holy Spirit to embrace the call of being a disciple, and all that it means, Jesus. So we want to say thank you, Lord, and bless us this evening, Jesus. Amen.